We're going to finish Acts 15 and move into chapter 16 this morning. So go and open your Bibles to Acts 15. We'll begin in verse 36. And I'll warn you, this week's lesson will seem like a breeze compared to last week's. It's, take a deep breath. It's almost like you know, a, a fireside chat today compared to the <laughs> of last week. Um, again, I hope last week didn't just absolutely overwhelm people, but I felt it necessary to really dig into that issue and give you all that I could in the short time that I had. So if you, don't, if you didn't hear last week's lesson, you can access it through uh, uh, Podbean. Um, we, we have our podcast. Travis uploads the sermons on there. I think there's directions to get to that in the bulletin, right? Yeah. So just check out the bulletin. All right? Let's pray and, and uh, get into this. Again, God, we just ask that as we open your word, it would be living and active to us, Father. Your spirit would move, would teach us. Father, even though this morning we're not dealing with hard doctrinal things, Father, we are dealing with existential relational things, and those can be equally difficult in a different way. And, um, but Father, it's very instructive for us. And so teach us, teach us uh, much out of this passage. There's much to learn and much to glean, Father, but refresh us as well. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. New relationships and a new vision is, is how I saw this passage today. Last week we covered the Jerusalem Conference, and um, it's a monumental passage, really, in church history. It's the first time the church had to come together and really make a doctrinal line as far as what the gospel is. Is the gospel um, faith plus works? Do I have to become like a Jew, keeping the law, being circumcised? Or are the Gentiles included in the family of God simply on the basis of believing the gospel. And that's what the conference conclusion came to. That's what Paul and Barnabas were defending at the church of Antioch when men came there saying, no, you've got to keep the law and be circumcised. They fought it vigorously. It was really the first outright attack on the truth that we see as far as a doctrinal attack. And, uh, and they, they got it right in that that line has been towed ever since that conference, really ever since the inception of the gospel, that line has been fought through the centuries of church history, and one we will fight as well. The gospel is the free grace of God. And what it did is it invigorated Paul and Barnabas to get back on the road. They wanted to go back and visit the churches that they had first planted on their first missionary journey and take these decrees with them because it would be an encouragement. We saw in Paul's first missionary journey that the Jews were following close behind him. He'd go into town. After he'd leave, they'd come in and spread their doctrine. And so Paul always had a concern for the churches. He knew that when he left, false teachers would creep in. And that was the habit. He actually says that in Acts 20, verse 28, to the church at Ephesus. I know that when I leave, savage wolves will come, not sparing the flock. So he makes plans for the second missionary journey. Just some background real quick on this missionary journey, what it's going to cover as far as our pages in Scripture. It'll cover from Acts 15.40 all the way through 18.22. And in that same verse, they turn around and go on their third missionary journey. So they weren't even in Antioch, according to Scripture, for less than a second, because that's how long it takes. No, I'm just kidding. That's being way too literal. Don't read Scripture that way. 
This trip would last roughly three years. Um, we're not really sure exactly if he started in 48 or 49 AD, but he would go through 51. And uh, his original desire was to go and strengthen, as I said, those churches he planted on his first trip. And, and we're going to talk about this in our next point, but I love that point as a pastor. He didn't want to just convert people. He wanted to ground them in the faith. But what's awesome about this trip is it will end up that he visits modern-day Europe. Those cities include Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus, among others. Those are some of the more notable large cities. Those cities were not in his original view before he set out on this trip. But he would end up visiting all of them. And we'll see at the end of our sermon, thankfully so. All right, here's an outline for you if you, uh, if you want to kind of outline it. First point, we're going to talk about evangelism and discipleship. A quick point in verse 37. Second, we're going to consider the separation that happened between Barnabas and Paul. And this is an interesting point to consider as a church because no doubt we'll have this happen. A new team then is formed in 16, 1 through 5. And then lastly, a new vision is given in 6 through 10. With that, let's embark on our passage. Beginning in verse 36 of Acts 15. It says, So after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord, and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So our first point there, first evangelism, then discipleship. In this one verse, verse 36, we see the, the pattern of what ministry should look like. First evangelism, then discipleship. And this is instructive for us in one sense because it reveals Paul's pastoral heart. I quoted Philippians 1.8 and 1 Thessalonians 2 there. Let me read them to you. Philippians 1.8 says this. And by the way, all the churches that I quote here are churches he visited on this second missionary journey. Um, I did that intentional. Paul said to the church at Philippi, For God is my witness how I, year, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 and 18, Paul said, But since we were torn away from you, we'll see eventually, Paul had to flee Thessalonica before he could really get the church grounded in the faith, and that grieved him, it bothered him, that he left them in an unfinished state, so to speak, revealing his pastoral heart. And that's what he says, Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So it reveals Paul's pastoral heart. He went on this first journey, planted these churches, converted people to the faith through the preaching of the gospel. And the time that he had with them, he tried to instruct them as best he could, but he moved on. So the second missionary journey, he wanted to go back there 
and truly establish them in the faith. This is where effective ministry begins. And so honestly, a lot of times where modern missions fails because they'll go into places, convert people, and then leave and never have a system in place to strengthen. And they're like little children floundering in the wide, great open sea. Paul wanted to ground these churches, these people he loved dearly in the faith. But it tells us, too, in that second point, he never only wanted to simply evangelize, though evangelizing was definitely on his heart. I quoted 1 Corinthians 9, 16. It says this, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel of Christ. So he didn't neglect evangelism either. And that's also important. Because churches can fall into that trap as well. We can be so heavy on simply wanting to disciple, 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 that we lose sight of preaching the gospel to the lost. There's this perfect balance in Paul. I love it. I love Paul's ministry. So then he sought to establish them in the faith. And if you're with us as a church from the very beginning, Ephesians 4 is actually where I first began preaching when we started the church. Uh, I began in Ephesians 3 and moved into this very passage in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Here's what Paul said of his own role as an apostle. He said, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, you, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So even though Paul came with apostolic authority, and part of that ministry as an apostle was to lay the foundation of the faith for the churches, part of his apostolic ministry also was to equip the people to do the work. Just like it is for me as a shepherd teacher. My ministry is not to do all the work, it's to teach you to do it all. I'm just, I said that facetiously, and <laughs> thank you for the laugh. <laughs> My jokes are falling flat today, gosh. No, but that's, that's in a sense true. I want to equip you to be able to do the work of ministry. And church, this is important to get, because there's such a, an easy habit to get into of simply getting in the mode of coming to church and then leaving and not recognizing your place or your role in the ministry. You are a co-laborer with Christ, and the leaders of any church are commanded to equip you with what you need to labor for Him, whatever that ministry is in. And that's, even as an apostle, Paul saw himself as, as fulfilling that role. So he wanted to do that with the churches he founded. But something got in the way first between he and Barnabas. In verse 37, it says this, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. Now if you remember, well it goes on to say this right here, but Paul thought best, verse 38, not to take with them one who had, the ESV translates it as withdrawn from them, in Pamphylia. The word is stronger than simply withdrawn, though. It's, it's not that John Mark just said, hey, I'm getting worn out, I'm going home. It was a desertion. It was a strong separation. We don't, we're not told scripturally why John Mark separated. I'm going to give you my theory, and as always, when it's my opinion, you can take it or leave it, okay? Um, if you remember... John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. Paul says that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. 
Um, and as such, if you remember Barnabas' lineage in, in Acts chapter 4, he was a Levite. He was of the priestly line. So Barnabas and John Mark's family were very strongly Jewish in their roots. And when they went on their first missionary journey, the goal was not necessarily at that point to go into the Gentile region, right? Um, at least in the Jews' mind. This, this whole conflict of the Jews needing to become, or the Gentiles needing to become Jews, um, was still underlying. And so the, the real Jewish hardcore people were still kind of sticking to their own. And when Paul broke from, from simply ministering to the Jews in the synagogues he went to and wanted to go up into Asia Minor to the Gentile region, it was at that point that John Mark left. We don't know if that's why he left, but it was definitely at that point. And many scholars, and I, I agree with them, think that it's because John Mark was one of those ones who disagreed with Paul. John Mark was perhaps one of those ones who said, Paul, they've got to become Jews first. They've got to adopt the Jewish customs. They're not just allowed to come in. And what's interesting, when you look at a lot of the evidence, John Mark, when he left, he, remember, he was commissioned from the church at Antioch. But when he left, he didn't go to Antioch. He went back to Jerusalem. He went back to his mom's house. If you remember Peter, uh, when Peter was released out of prison by the angel, it was John Mark's mother's house that Peter went to, and all the, the church was gathered praying for him. You remember that account? And so Peter, who was the apostle to the Jews, will end up taking, we'll see in, in history, church history, uh, will end up taking Mark with him in his ministry. Um, in fact, uh, church history indicates, we'll get to this in a minute, but church history indicates that John Mark was Peter's interpreter when Peter went to Rome. And the Gospel of Mark that bears his name, John Mark wrote, and Peter was his source. Peter, in his first letter, in 1 Peter 5.12, indicates that Mark was with him. So many people think that John Mark had a problem with going, preaching the way Paul was to the Gentiles and went back to the church of Jerusalem. I think what happened then is after this Acts 15 conference, when they settled that issue, John Mark perhaps saw his error and said, I want to go back. But Paul said, no. That's my opinion, okay? Um, nonetheless, Barnabas was insistent. Literally, it's in the imperfect there. Barnabas kept on wanting, is how you should read that. Barnabas kept on wanting to take with them John called Mark. And literally, you could read it, verse 38 is, but Paul kept on thinking it not best. <laughs> so, Perhaps it started out as a friendly suggestion. Let's take John. No. Hey, come on, think about it. Let's take John. No. And they both were equally persistent in their desire until it got to the point where a sharp disagreement ensued. This is somewhat problematic to, to interpret in this way, okay? Here's the other, uh, here's all the information I just told you about Mark. Um, this presents a problem. Was, was Paul wrong in this? Who was right? Was Barnabas wrong? Or was he right? Was this an example of, of, uh, of Luke just recording an instance of the flesh in, in Paul? Or an instance in the flesh of Barnabas? We don't really know, but 
I do want to share what I think, because I think this is an important aspect when it comes to church relationships even today. Whether they were in the flesh or not, I don't know. I don't think they were, personally. But I I can't say for sure. But what we do know is that sharp disagreements, even between believers, still happen today. Have you guys ever had them? Could be over numerous things, right? Doctrinal things, perchance. Emotional things. Things that you really hold dear in ministry or whatever. Sharp disagreements happen. And in this case, it led to Barnabas and Saul splitting, or Paul splitting. You've got to understand how big of a deal that was. Barnabas has been a, a stout person in the church from the very beginning. Super important man in church history. In fact, it was Barnabas who first came to Paul and brought him to Jerusalem after his conversion and convinced the, the rest of the church and the apostles to listen to him because they were all afraid of him. They thought Paul was lying trying to get into the church to destroy it still. And Barnabas was the only one sticking up for Paul saying, no, I know he was converted. It was Barnabas when when the gospel broke out in Antioch the first time. They sent Barnabas up there to check it out and to establish the church there. And Barnabas, seeing how great the work was, instead of going back down to Jerusalem to bring up the other apostles, who did he go get? He went up to Tarsus and brought Paul and taught him, enlisted Paul. It was Barnabas who first went with Paul on the missionary journey. Barnabas has been a major figure in Paul's life. And so whatever caused that separation emotionally, whatever, it was a big deal for both of them. These guys endured much, much together. And so it's easy to read through that and simply say, oh, they split and went their own way. This was was a hard, hard thing to come to. But it also reveals how big of a deal what Barnabas and what Saul disagreed on was. And you've got to ask the question, who's right? I think in the immediate, Paul was right. By the way, if you go to small groups tonight, I focus a lot of my questions on this. For application, okay? For application for us today. But let's consider what happened. Mark had a serious failure of character. It wasn't simply that Mark went home. He deserted them. How big of a deal is that on a foreign mission field? It's a huge deal. I had a brother who was deserted by his home church in Morocco with Al-Qaeda running around the hills he's ministering in. I know how big of a deal it is through him to be deserted. He was destitute. Desertion could seriously compromise a mission mission team on the field. While it doesn't disqualify Mark permanently, in Paul's opinion, it did in the short term. Even if Mark, if if my assumption and, and many others' assumption is right, that Mark was hindered because of the Gentile issue, still holding on to the law somewhat and insisting that the Gentiles have to come under the law, and even if he'd been corrected through the Jerusalem council and saw his error, he still needed time to be built up. And that's essentially what Paul is, is after. I'm not taking him on the mission field again yet. Not yet. He was not fit for the position just yet. Now that may seem hard 
for some of us. And this is one of my questions in small groups. That may be hard for people to really swallow because we, we as a church understand God's grace. We understand God's second chances at things, right? We understand that God is patient and forbearing with us. But does that exclude consequences? No. Not at all. I mean, even as elders, we're, we're wrapping up our qualifications as we meet. And you know what? There's many things that can disqualify someone from being an elder. And some of those things are permanent disqualifications. Doesn't mean they can't be restored. Doesn't mean they can't be forgiven. It doesn't mean they're not a child of God, but it does mean they may not ever serve in this position. There's some big deals. And you don't just simply put someone back in that position who's had such a serious failure. What about Barnabas? Does that mean Barnabas was totally wrong? No. Barnabas, you remember, means son of encouragement, right? I think Barnabas was one of those people who was a mercy shower. You ever known one of them? I love mercy showers. I, I want to be around them because I tend to not be so merciful at times and hold me accountable to that. I'm getting ahead of myself. Barnabas would end up taking John Mark with him to the island of Cyprus. That was his home island. In fact, some historical accounts, historical traditions say that Barnabas went to Cyprus with John Mark and he died there in his home. Um, those sources that that tradition comes from are not really reliable in other parts, so historians hold that loosely. But there is that tradition that Barnabas, when he went back to Cyprus, took John Mark with him and he died there. And that's when John Mark came back and attached himself to Peter. Nonetheless, people with the gift of mercy, they often struggle with immediate and short-term consequences of sin. You know what I'm saying? People who, who show mercy, they, they want to deliver someone immediately from those consequences. And that's not really an act of mercy, that's actually a hindrance. When you have to endure consequences, it's a good thing. And there's a tendency on, on mer with mercy showers to want to pull people out of that too quickly. I think that's where Paul was right. John Mark needs to learn. Barnabas, however, took John Mark with him to Cyprus. And through that ministry, we know that John Mark was restored. So people with mercy, unlike somebody like me sometimes, will tend to bear with others longer than people without that gift. And we equally need that, don't we? We need those people with mercy who can bear with someone's failure. It can be frustrating. I was just talking to Jill about that. One of the most discouraging and frustrating parts of ministry is, is teaching and ministering and teaching and ministering and then just watching someone... It's hard. Mercy showers are able to just bear with them patiently, gently, kindly. That's what Barnabas did with Mark. They often, mercy showers often see a path of reconciliation where others do not. 
where others might tend to throw in the towel on someone or something too quickly. A mercy shower will stick it out and reconcile it. That's what Barnabas ends up doing. He proves that in, in this case, in, in Mark, he proves that true. So while I think Paul was correct in not bringing Mark at that time, I wouldn't have. I, I read this, I mean, I've I got to get you into my perspective. I read this as a pastor, and I evaluate that situation. If Mark had done to me what he did to Paul, I wouldn't bring Mark along. As a pastor, I'd say, no, you're not fit. You need time. But on the other hand, I don't want to just give up on the guy either. And as a pastor, I'm thankful Barnabas was there to take him, to bear with him, and to restore him. It's really a beautiful example of the body at work, but the hard part is there's still that separation between the two. It leads me to ask in your small group questions, is separation between two Christians always wrong? I'm not going to answer that for you. Although I want to. <laughs> I'll be at the men's group, so maybe I'll, <laughs> I'll speak my two cents then, Travis. We do know from Scripture, however, that they didn't stay separated. They were reconciled. And there's lots of passages indicating this. Um, Barnabas, we don't see Barnabas after this in the book of Acts. So this is the last we see of him in the book of Acts. However, to the Corinthian church... Paul commended Barnabas' ministry, found in 1 Corinthians 9, 6. Paul doesn't get to Corinth until much later in the second missionary journey, toward the end of that journey. So we know at some point toward the end of, of his journey, between when Paul visited Corinth and when he wrote this letter, Barnabas had been recommended by Paul. His ministry was commended by Paul to them. Both were right in one sense, and all three of them would come back later and be reconciled. It's not the end of Paul's relationship with Mark either. In fact, I love some of the things Paul says. I quote 2 Timothy 4.11, it's my favorite New Testament book. Some of the last words that Paul would write in chapter 4 before he goes silent in church history He's exhorting Timothy to come to him quickly. He knows he's about to die. And following on the heels of Timothy, he says that, and bring John Mark with you, for he's very useful to me. For what? Ministry. One point, John Mark abandoned the ministry. Now Paul says, he's very useful to me. Whatever happened in John Mark's life, it was pretty drastic to where Paul could say he's very helpful, very useful. At one point, he wouldn't even take him along. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, Paul said that John Mark was one of the few of the circumcision, one of the Jews, who was ministering among the Gentiles with him, and that he had proven to be an encouragement to me. So not only was John Mark useful, very useful to Paul in ministry, John Mark ended up being a true source of encouragement to Paul as well. This is why I think this is such an important passage and point for us as a church. When church separations in relationships happen today, unfortunately, they tend to stay 
separated. Separation might be inevitable at times. That might be true. But it should not be eternal. Paul would write to the Roman church, as much as depends on you, live in peace with all people. You go out of your way to make every attempt to be at peace with people. Sometimes the other party just will not have it, and it's not possible. So I'm not saying you go compromise everything, but you do everything you can to make peace. In this case, we see that the two, John Mark, where at one time he deserted Paul, he'd left the ministry, Paul refused to let him back on at that moment, now we see Paul just the opposite, bring him to me. He's very helpful, and he's very encouraging. You see how grace and, and the relationship we have in Christ can mend old wounds and disagreements. It can overcome all of that. That's why I love this point. Those who are mature in Christ will understand that you need to work toward that as much as depends on you. But Paul goes on and he chooses Silas after Barnabas sails off to Cyprus with Mark. Verse 40 says, Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. What's interesting is that it doesn't say that the church commended Barnabas and Paul to the grace of the Lord. I, I don't want to read into that, but I do think it's important. They did commend Paul and, and Silas to the work. They were in full backing of Paul and what he wanted to do. If you remember Silas, who was he? He was one of the men that the Jerusalem church sent down, or actually up to Antioch, with Paul after the conference to reaffirm to the Gentile church of the Jewish church's position of their standing. No, you don't need to convert to the law. Silas was called a chief man among the brethren at Jerusalem. And so they sent him to affirm their words along with Paul and Barnabas. He was also called a prophet in 1532. Very important position in the early church, even now. One who forcefully or, or clearly puts before the people what God's word says. In the early church, it was paramount. The church needed to understand in a clear, direct way, what's the word of God? What's it telling us? What's it mean? And God gave first apostles and then prophets to the church for that purpose. So Silas was well-equipped. He was mentioned by Paul in three different letters. letters: 2 Corinthians, and then 1 and 2 Thessalonians. He was also entrusted to carry Peter's first epistle to the Jews who had been scattered abroad. And in 1 Peter 5.12, uh, he uses a different version of his name, Silvanus, but it's Silas, it's this man. And so at some point in his ministry, possibly after Paul had been beheaded in Rome, Silas went and helped Peter in his work as well. And he was entrusted to carry Peter's letter to those Jews. Therefore, we know his character. He was trustworthy. He was honest. He was authoritative and he was experienced. Being a prophet, I should have added there, and being a missionary. In fact, in chapter 16, it's Silas who's imprisoned with Paul and is singing at midnight with him hymns. He suffered for the gospel. He was large-hearted. And he was consistent. Silas is a major person next to the apostles in the New Testament. A major helper for Paul in his ministry. 
In fact, I don't think Paul's second and third missionary journeys could have been what they were without Silas. Somewhat like Barnabas in the first and and previous ones. So being commended in verse 40 by the brothers at Antioch to the grace of the Lord, verse 41 says, He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now what's interesting here is, if you remember, he wanted to return to the churches he'd previously went to with Barnabas. But he goes up to Syria and Cilicia. It's the exact opposite way. Cilicia was where Tarsus was. That was Paul's hometown. It was where Barnabas came to get him to help at Antioch. So we know uh, Paul had been at Tarsus for some time, evangelizing, no doubt, because there's churches up there in Syria and Cilicia. Paul, besides going up there that, that we know of, never did a missionary journey there. But he goes up there, passing through, and strengthens the churches with Silas. And then he comes in 16.1 to Derby and to Lystra. Now those two cities were cities that Paul visited on his first missionary journey. He went to Lystra, then Derby. But because he's going the opposite way now, he goes to Derby, then to Lystra. He's coming from the opposite direction. That's why Luke listed it that way. He goes to Derby and to Lystra, because he came in from a different direction. And verse 1 says, A disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Timothy would become, along with Silas and along with Barnabas, probably closer than either one of those two, Timothy would become the closest person to Paul in Paul's life. Paul would eventually come to call him my beloved child. It's led many to think that Paul converted Timothy his first time at Lystra. We don't know that to be the case. No doubt it was at Paul's preaching that he eventually came to faith, either directly through Paul's preaching or through the conversion of someone who was under Paul's preaching. But he was found at Lystra. If you remember, it was at Lystra that Paul was left for dead, being stoned. He was drug out of the city. He gets up, walks back in the city, and then the next day walks 40 miles to Derby. Timothy's mother, we're told, was a Jew, as was his grandmother. Both were believers, Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.5. That's actually who I think converted Timothy. Um, I think perhaps either the grandma or the mom was converted on Paul's first trip, and they led their son to faith. But we're also told his father was a Greek. And it's in the passive tense, meaning he was probably dead at this point. We're also told that Timothy had a good testimony with the brothers. Now there's such a beautiful thing in this relationship. I I have a lot of notes here I love. Timothy in so many ways was the perfect brother to accompany Paul. Despite there being a large age gap. The, the word child there, there's an inscription that they found archaeologically in a gymnasium that broke, broke uh, different Greek words into ages. And the word that Paul chose for Timothy indicates that, that he was between the ages of 18 and 21. Okay? Timothy was a young man. Paul was 50, maybe, at this point. So there's an age gap, but in many ways it was Timothy who was a perfect fit to accompany Paul because Paul was a Jew of Jews, you remember, yet he, was, he had Roman citizenship. He'd been educated in the, in the Greek culture thoroughly. Timothy, his mother was a Jew and his father was a Greek. He also understood both worlds very well. 
In fact, Timothy had never come to circumcision, meaning he probably never fully adopted the Jewish culture. He never became a proselyte in that sense. But he had the perfect blend of Jewishness and Greekness, if you can say it that way. Paul, through his education and upbringing, Timothy through his own bloodline. But more, Timothy was found at Lystra, and this is beautiful to consider. This was the place that Paul had been stoned out of Paul's sacrifice on behalf of those saints. Think about this. Paul was willing to risk his life for that city that they might hear the gospel, and he was nearly stoned to death in that place. When he comes back, it's at that very place he risked so much that God gave him back someone who would risk everything with him. Isn't that beautiful to think about? By the way, you can apply that in a beautiful way to your life. The more you're willing to risk and lay down for the Lord, the Lord will reward that in some way. In this case, it was with a traveling companion. One who Paul would say, I have no one greater than Timothy that I can trust. It's beautiful to think about. As I said, Paul would later call Timothy my beloved child. Such an affectionate, affectionate term. Paul's last letter he ever wrote was to Timothy. What does that tell you? And in that, he calls him, Timothy, my, my son, be strong in the grace of Christ. It's one of the most important relationships in all the New Testament. Paul was a human. And he suffered much in his travels. The Lord knew he would have times of loneliness. But he also supplied Paul with one who perfectly, perfectly helped him. Paul's last words in that last letter he ever wrote was this, Do your best to come to me soon. He loved this man, Timothy. So, Timothy was Paul's trusted companion. Twice Paul would send Timothy to strengthen struggling churches. In fact, the 1 Corinthians passage there is beautiful. Paul says, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul just said, imitate me. I'm sending Timothy to teach you how. What's that say? Timothy perfectly knew Paul and his ways. Beautiful. Timothy would later come to pastor the church at Ephesus, a major church in a major Roman city. In fact, tradition says that he was martyred at a parade there to a Greek god. Two out of the New Testament, two of the New Testament books were addressed to him in particular, bearing his name, including the last letter Paul would ever write, and he is also mentioned in six other letters by Paul, eight books total of the New Testament. That's large. Now we're going to address something here that may seem controversial. So Paul meets Timothy. In verse 3 it says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now hold on here. I thought Paul had said to the Galatian church that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. Only a new creation matters. And wasn't it just Paul who had fought so vigorously not to put people back under the law in Jerusalem? Why would he turn around and go circumcise Timothy? Did he just violate everything he'd fought for? 
Well, some think so. We're told that it was because of the Jews who were there who knew Timothy's father was a Greek. So Paul is not putting Timothy under the law here. What Paul is doing is removing a barrier to ministry in Timothy's life. If you remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 and 20 says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. Now listen to this. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. What would happen if Paul took Timothy to a synagogue with him, the Jews in that synagogue, knowing Timothy's heritage and that his father was a Greek and that he was uncircumcised, what that tells the Jews is that Timothy rejects the Jewish ancestry, rejects the covenants, when in fact he doesn't. He's just not submitting to the law for righteousness. Paul knew it would be a barrier to ministry. So what's he do? He circumcises him to remove it. He's not putting Timothy back under the law for salvation. He's just becoming as a Jew in order to win some. So there's no problem here. In fact, he says of Titus, who was fully Greek, that he didn't compel Titus to become circumcised because it didn't matter. He was fully Greek. Timothy was Jewish and Greek, being half and half. So, you can look those up. Show must go on. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy hit the road. In verse 4 it says, As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them, all those churches, the observances, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Consequently, the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in number daily. This is so beautiful. Paul, having found new vigor and backing with the church of Jerusalem, goes and preaches the gospel, the free grace of Christ, to him. And he delivers those ordinances saying, basically, the church in Jerusalem is in agreement. The law should not come in between Jew and Gentile. It's been reconciled. But be mindful of these issues, Greeks, because they're stumbling blocks to the Jews. And keep yourselves free from sexual immorality. And that was an encouragement, it said, to all the churches. Now keep in mind, this whole mission trip, Paul is going to be delivering these ordinances to the churches. It's not just he starts out and then stops. Everywhere he went, in fact, it was, it was to the church at Rome and Corinth that Paul expounded on this greater, right? In the, in the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. Are you under obligation to not eat it? Yeah, if it's causing your brother to stumble, but you're free to if it doesn't. That's basically what the ordinances were. So he expounds on that issue to those churches he visits. And I think it's because of these, these um, agreements that the church came to. Okay? But we're going to get to my favorite part of this. I love this short little passage. I use this passage, by the way, often in counseling people, 6 through 10. A new vision. Let's read it. Acts 16, 6. So they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. 
And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go out or to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. A new vision happens here. They pass through Phrygia and Galatia, where his original churches were on the first missionary trip. Why'd they pass by? Because the Holy Spirit forbid them to speak the word. Does that seem strange to anybody? Why would the Holy Spirit forbid Paul to speak the word? Isn't that what he's been commissioned to do? So, they go on. They attempt to go north to Bithynia. Those were unreached areas, but they were again denied to go there. And we're not told the answer to the question I'm sure every one of you is asking. Why did the Holy Spirit not let them go south into Galatia where they'd been or north into Bithynia to preach the word? Those are things that are, are commanded to be doing. Why would he forbid it? How did he speak to them is one of the questions as well. Was it through direct command? Was it through providential circumstances in the case similar to Peter's in Acts 9? Was it through constant opportunities where they found themselves that they just couldn't break away from that to get there? Fact is, we're not told. We're not told. But they were sure as to the conclusion of it being the Holy Spirit forbidding them. Does that leave anybody unsettled? Be honest with you, it leaves me a little unsettled. What if the Lord is, is, is hindering something I'm wanting to do, and I'm just not hearing it? Even if it's a good work that the, the Spirit's saying, no, don't do that. Would He really do that? Yeah, He would. Why? Because there's something else He's got for you. Doesn't mean that's wrong, but it might mean it's for someone else. And that's the conclusions we can come to. The reality is we're not told why or how, but we can see that it's happened, and it happens to us. Now I want to recap everything here for you, because you can read this account as being somewhat disappointing for Paul at this point. He wants to embark on another missionary journey with Barnabas, his trusted companion. What happens? Disagreement. He forms a new team. And their original plan to go visit and strengthen those churches, now it's thwarted by God. For whatever reason, however it's done, he's not allowed to do it. And so now he's in this open area where he, he knows not where he's going. All of his plans have been hindered by the Lord himself. If you stop there, you would look at that situation and think, man, this is discouraging. My trusted guy, Barnabas, he's not with me, and here I am. We're not even doing what we wanted to do. God, what is it that you have for us? In fact, the way the Scripture says they came down to Troas, the only way they could have gotten there was this isolated little road that was hardly ever used. Basically skirts the coastline on the mountain ridge. So they're just kind of wandering along the coastline, being funneled down in this bottleneck down to Troas, which was at the bottom of the inland there. But in due time, they were obedient to the Holy Spirit. They didn't force their will or their desire. They followed, they kept going, and in due time, what's the Holy Spirit do? 
shows him what he wants. Why is it so important? Well, let's look at it. In verse 8, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. In verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Troas is a port city, and from Troas, they could easily reach Macedonia. Macedonia is basically a straight shot across the little sea there to modern Europe. Now, how important is this? It's the first time the gospel came to Europe. And you and I, sitting here, are direct descendants of this. You see that? Why was it so important that Paul listened to the Holy Spirit's leading? Because God had you and I in mind, partly, to get us the gospel. Are you not thankful for his obedience? Amen. That's why it's so important. It's interesting, in studying this, there's a few, uh, few notable men commentators who speculate that the man in the vision might actually have been Luke. Why do they think that? Well, let's, uh, let me read this quote, quote actually from G. Campbell Morgan. I love this quote. I've got two in the, in the sermon here. Morgan says this, that little word concluding, that they concluded God was calling us to go preach in Macedonia, is full of interest and value. It marks the ultimate result of processes. Paul began the journey by desiring to revisit churches already founded. He ended at Troas with a vision, a surprise, a new call, an open door, and vast expanses stretching before his eyes. Isn't that beautiful to think of? Never in Paul's dreams did he think he was about to embark on Europe. That's what God had in mind. It wasn't what Paul had in mind. Our ways aren't always His ways, right? Think of the possibility of new work and with the conviction that this was the mind of God. How much joy would that give you? Having separated from Barnabas, having been forbidden to do this and that, which you set your heart to do. God, I want to strengthen these churches. They're little infants. I want to, I want to mature them. I want to make sure they're okay. No. No. Why? Because I'm sending you to Europe. There's a vast field of people who need to hear my name. So why do scholars think it was potentially Luke? Again, take this or leave it. Whoops, that should say 1610. Sorry, not 1510. You might have missed it in verse 10. It says this, When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, first plural person, right? Up until this point in Acts, Luke has been the author, but it's always they, they, they. Now it's first person. This is where Luke joins the team in Troas. That's why many people think that it was potentially Luke who appeared in the vision. They get to Troas, and they see Luke. And Luke, and they sail off. I can't say it's completely unfounded. We don't know if that's where. We don't really know how Luke ended up joining the team. We know it's at this point that he does join the team. It's an interesting thought, at the very least. Something worth thinking about. 
If you remember, uh, for instance, Peter, in his vision, the Lord spoke to him and said, hey, there's going to be some men coming knocking on your door. Go down and answer it. They're going to take you up to Caesarea. Remember that? The Lord's done it before. Could have been Luke. So, so this does demonstrate that this is where Luke actually joins the team in Troas. This team will accompany Paul for much of the rest of his life in various degrees. In fact, at the end of his life in 2 Timothy, when he's writing Timothy to come to him, he also says, Luke alone is with me. Everyone else has deserted me. Luke would be a constant companion as well. Very, very important man in church history and to Paul himself on his journeys. I want to end with these, this quote. It's going to be two slides, but it's G. Campbell Morgan. I love this because it talks about this application for this point that I, I use so much in counseling. I use in my own life to evaluate situations. Lord, why not this? Why not this? Why are you hindering this? What's going on? This is something good. Yes, but it's not what he wants. How do we deal with that? Here's what Morgan says. The important thing is that the man whom the Spirit will guide is the man who's in the attitude in which it is possible for the Spirit to guide him. Think about that. Sometimes we're not in an attitude of heart to be guided. Right? What's important is that Paul and his team were willing to let go of their desire and be guided. So we look again at this man and we find an attitude of life revealed. It is that of loyalty to the Lord, faith in the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and constant watchfulness. I love that. There's where we too often fail. It goes on. It is when a man is in fellowship with the Lord that he sees the disappointment and the difficulty are also under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Think about what he's saying. All those disappointments Paul could have looked at, Barnabas splitting, John Mark's desertion, not being able to strengthen those children he loved in the faith. That's also under the Holy Spirit's provision and guidance. Are you willing to accept that, in other words? Are you in an attitude of heart to accept that that might be the Spirit's plan? For whatever reason, you might not know right yet, but you will. It is the watcher for the Lord who sees the Lord. If we make up our minds that the way of guidance is the way of a flaming vision or rolling thunder and an articulate voice and a lifting to a height of ecstasy, then we may never be guided. If you're always looking for the sign, you might actually miss what the Lord's doing. That's a beautiful quote. It's a beautiful application to this passage, especially with us having hindsight. Paul had never gone to Europe. Who knows if the gospel would have gone there? I'm sure it would have. But you and I are direct descendants of this passage. In conclusion, Paul's desire to go strengthen the churches he established was good. And yet it was not what the Lord wanted for him or from him. The Lord's desire was to go to a new area. Or Paul's desire was to go to a new area, Bithynia, to preach. That was also good. And yet it was not what the Lord wanted from him. Sometimes good things are not always God's will for you. Are you willing to let that go? Because he does have something for you. We've got to learn how to test things to prove the will of God. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. In our passage, Paul's discernment that God was calling him to preach in Macedonia had huge ramifications 
as we said, it's when the gospel first came to Europe, and here you and I are sitting with it in our lap. It's a beautiful passage. I love going to that passage when dealing with how do you know the Lord's will? Sometimes it's strange, but it's good. It's bigger than what you and I could imagine. We're going to sing a song. I'll invite the worship team up called I Will Follow. And in case you didn't guess, based on the point we just made, that's why we're singing I Will Follow the Lord.